Great. Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, this conference is about honouring God the Holy Spirit. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when they were together in the upper room, he said a tremendous amount about the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the extraordinary things about the night in which Jesus was betrayed is that we just have so much teaching in John's Gospel that comes from that particular evening. And it says this in John 16, and I'm going to read from verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Well, the reason I'm starting there is because in some ways, having a whole conference about honouring God the Holy Spirit is a little bit of a challenge. Because the Holy Spirit himself does not particularly have this great big desire to be honoured. <laughs> you can see from these few verses that the Holy Spirit's desire is that we should honour the Father and honour the Son. And just in that sense, you just begin to get an insight into the very nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's character has that mark of humility. The Holy Spirit is one who comes to serve. Now, there is a principle which says that whatever you attribute to one person in the Godhead, you also need to be able to attribute to the other two persons in the Godhead, because God is not divided in the sense that one is this and one is that and the other. But you can see that there's this emphasis that comes across. The Holy Spirit is not seeking honour for himself. In fact, when the Holy Spirit comes and moves in our lives, he's actually seeking to transform us so that we become honourable. <laughs> it's, it's just part of what the Holy Spirit does. And in laying a foundation, just as we're starting this conference, I want to lay the foundation by looking at what it is to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, you could think when I say that, that I'm going to talk about how we got the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But what I want us to see is a little bit about the character and the role of the Holy Spirit and I hope that as we see certain things in the Holy Spirit, it's going to just begin to inspire those same principles in our own lives. Obviously, as we go on through the conference, we can look at things like being convicted by the Spirit, what the Spirit does in the world, being reborn through the Spirit, what the Spirit does in our lives, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, so the power of God comes upon us, and how the Holy Spirit brings us all together in one body, which is really important too, and how we're transformed by the work of the Spirit. So we see the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives. But just to start with this sense, this foundation of 
being inspired by who the Holy Spirit is. And I've just put down these words in my notes. I want to see the Holy Spirit exemplifying for us partnership without profile. (laughs) You know, where he works with the Father and the Son, but he's not seeking profile for himself. And I think if we can see that's in the Holy Spirit, and we can be inspired by that, so that in our own lives we're happy to partner without seeking profile, then then that would make a huge difference in the church. And also I want to look at this whole thing about the presence of the Holy Spirit is presence without pressure. Now, sometimes when the Holy Spirit is present in power, you do feel pressure, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come to pressurise you. There's a pressure of his presence, but he's not here to pressurise. And that's something that's really important as well, because if we're moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to discover something of what it is to have God's presence without being pressurising. And then there's something that you want to see as well about the Holy Spirit, and that's in the whole realm of the perfection that he brings. You know, if we're talking about us being transformed into Christ's likeness, then that's bringing forth the perfection of God. And there's a perfection in the Holy Spirit that's without parallel. Well, I say without parallel. Of course, it's paralleled by the perfection in the Father and the Son. But you won't find perfection anywhere else like this, outside of the Godhead. So if you can just see, that's what we're going to pick up on in the next few moments. Partnership without profile. Presence without pressure. And perfection without parallel. That'll really help us. Now, I thought the best way into this would be to look at the creation. And it says in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What we have there inspired by the Holy Spirit, because it's in Scripture, is a clear statement of the role of the Son of God in creation. And yet, when you turn to Genesis chapter 1, you discover that actually the Holy Spirit also had a very significant role in creation. But when he's inspiring John to write about the creation, it's Jesus that is made center stage. And yet in Genesis 1 it says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, the Father speaks the word into the spirit. So right there, at the beginning of the whole of creation, you've got Father, Son and Holy Spirit working together. And the way in which Father, Son and Holy Spirit works together is an absolute example of everything that we should see in terms of partnership. You look for models of partnership in scripture, you might say, oh, let's look at Paul and Barnabas. But in the times when Paul and Barnabas were working together, It was just a partnership that reflected something of that which is in the heart of God. 
The best we're ever going to find about partnership is when we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together. But when you see that, you realise that the Holy Spirit is able to participate in that partnership without seeking profile. There's no competitiveness in the Godhead. I'd love to see more of this kind of non-competitive partnership in the church. Because so often we get caught out in the sort of, I must be seen, I must be this, I must be that. But if we knew more of the Holy Spirit, what would be the first thing that we would discover, if we're going to be inspired by him? That he has a way of doing partnership without seeking profile. Where it really is a case of preferring one another. And the Holy Spirit has that amazing ministry. I'm already getting excited about it because I think it's just great. Now, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has been a, a subject of, of debate. In fact, it's called rifts in the church, you know, because uh, the Orthodox Church really wants to emphasize the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And yet, you know, the church in the West has always gone down the route that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And you might think, well, that sounds very complicated theologically. Why did they fall out over it? Well, part of the reason they fell out over it was that the Orthodox Church didn't like the fact that the bishop in Rome made the decision to add that statement to the Nicene Creed without any consultation. So some of it isn't really a theological argument at all. It's actually about uh, church government. Who's got the right to say this and who's got the right to say that? But when you look at it, you can see that the reason that that whole debate takes place is precisely because the Holy Spirit doesn't come and say, this is where I came from, this is how it all works. He's just in the background. And you might say, surely he'd want to bring a point of clarification. But in some ways, that's just not his nature. (laughs) And this is one of the reasons why when... Jesus is speaking, he's very protective of the Holy Spirit. He says, you can blaspheme me, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then how are you going to receive forgiveness? Now there's a whole reasoning behind that. It's because the Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to repentance. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to life. So if you're actually coming right against the Holy Spirit, you're coming against the very source that can transform you. But there's also a sense in which Jesus is aware that the Holy Spirit is not going to speak up for himself. So he's going to say, look, what you do to me, (laughs) because he knew that the world was going to crucify him, but you're not going to treat the Holy Spirit like that. See, God also is protective of the Holy Spirit in the sense that, and we'll look at this a little bit more closely later on, but God gave his only son to this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But when God gives the Holy Spirit, it wasn't that God gave the Holy Spirit to the world, he gave the Holy Spirit to the church because he expects the church to treat the Holy Spirit with respect. There's a whole sense in which God the Father and God the Son knows this aspect of the Holy Spirit's heart and ministry to the point where you can see that there's a protectiveness. Now, I love that sense that where there is an abandonment, you don't have to protect yourself. If we're talking about partnership without profile, 
you've got to be prepared if you're going to go into this kind of partnership to say, I'm going to trust others to do the protecting. <laughs> so you give yourself. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit unreservedly gives himself and the protection doesn't come from him being self-protective. It comes from the fact that the Father and the Son are watching over this amazing person, the third person in the Trinity, who is prepared to partner with our profile. How do we get on with that ourselves? How self-protective can we be at times? How much can we learn from the Holy Spirit in terms of abandonment and this principle of partnership? It's amazing, really, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he actually wants to build us up. I think it's quite amazing that when Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, and we all know this scripture, I'm sure, in Matthew 5, where it says this, very familiar words, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Who is it that gives us the light to shine? It's the Holy Spirit. But what does he want? He wants the Father to be glorified. Now, when we pray in a few moments that God is going to move through this conference with power, I want us to really have this sense that the Holy Spirit is this person that can make this kind of difference in our lives. But also as we're praying, we're in a sense taking on the mantle of the Holy Spirit because we're, we're saying that this isn't just a bless me conference. But our heart's desire is that when others come in, that God's going to move in their lives. Get beyond the selfishness. Of course we want God to do things in our hearts and in our lives. But when the scripture says that we should be in honour preferring one another, we already find that example there in God himself. Do you get that sense in the beginning? God created Father, Son, Holy Spirit working in partnership. And yet, when it's recorded there in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit inspiring the scriptures is able to say, it was the word, it was the word. It was the Word. And yet we know it was the Word and the Spirit moving together. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a real sense that the presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. Without that presence of the Holy Spirit, it just wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's not the Word alone. We need the presence of God's Spirit. But so often, even in the church, we, 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 we push the word to the point where the Holy Spirit is barely honoured. But you know you can go in the opposite direction? You can sort of try and give the Holy Spirit a profile he doesn't want to have. <laughs> and in trying to give that Holy Spirit profile that he doesn't want to have, you're not really honouring the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? We're told to, to pray to the Father through Jesus the Son. And yet, it is perfectly legitimate to speak to the Holy Spirit. I believe that when the angels around the throne worship and they say, Holy, 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 they are acknowledging 
the holiness of God the Father, the holiness of God the Son, and the holiness of God the Holy Spirit. I know also that grammatically it's the way that you say holiest of all. You have to say holy, holy, holy. But it's also an acknowledgement, isn't it, that there's this equality of partnership. And there is. Please don't think that just because sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the third person in the Trinity, he's the least important. He certainly isn't. But he's the one who seeks no profile for himself but lives to see the Father and the Son glorified. Are we going to put our hands up and say, Lord, make me like that? <laughs> or is it too soon in the conference to say that kind of thing, you know? You want to wait till we get to the power bits. You say, oh, Lord, make me like that. But this is the foundation. You've got to know who the Spirit is before you start saying, Lord, I want more of that. <laughs> because when you get more of what the Holy Spirit brings, you're actually going to have more of who the Holy Spirit is. So let's find out who he is. He's the one who partners without seeking profile. Now, the second thing I want to say about the Holy Spirit, and we can still pick this up as well from Genesis 1, he is the one who gives us his presence without bringing pressure. All right? So what does it say? It says in Genesis 1, chapter one and those early verses, well, verse two particularly, it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I had such a great time preparing this. I just, I really at this point, I, I just sense something fresh in the spirit of God. I was sort of away there. In fact, you know, I'd, I'd set aside time to write all my notes and I didn't write any notes at all for a whole day. I just was sort of just enjoying the sort of presence of God and what I was just picking up in the spirit. But when I was looking at this and just sensing how the spirit of God hovered on the, on the face of the deep, when it was without form and when it was void, I thought, Goodness me, there's something there I've got to learn. Yeah. I'm a shaper, I'm a, I'm a molder, you know. I want to get something in my hands and, and turn it into something, you know. Uh, even, even in a counselling room, if I'm honest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, how can I help shape this person's life? Not that I want to be manipulative, but I want to see results, you know. But the Holy Spirit was just, Hovering. <laughs> the earth was without form. It was void. There was darkness on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was just hovering on the face of the deep. And, and we're not told, you know, it was just for a moment. It might have been for an extended period of time. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the deep. We don't even know what the deep was. We don't know why the earth was without form and void at this particular point. You know, how, did, how did the deep get there? <laughs> because the deep needed to be created. There's all sorts of theories about this. Was there a creation before the creation? How did this work, you know? 
Did something go wrong? Was the angelic fall something that actually affected the beginning of what God was doing? All of these theories abound. But wherever you come to on this, you've got this patient person, the Holy Spirit, who's just hovering. (coughs) Patiently moving, gently moving on the face of the deep. When it's dark, when it's empty, And I thought to myself, this is incredible because it's almost like the Holy Spirit was aware of just how deep the deep was. Just how much potential there was in that depth. He wasn't confused by the darkness or even panicked by the darkness. I think of times when I've been in a counselling situation and the person sitting there has got so many problems, you just think, I don't know what to do. And what would the Holy Spirit do in that situation? Hover. Just hover. That's all I could think of. He, He would hover. He would just be prepared to be present without applying pressure. Now, I know there's one big lesson I'm still learning in life. It's called patience. Um, And I am so impatient to learn patience, it's just not true. But I know that the Holy Spirit has endless patience. Sometimes you're praying down a line of people, you know, who have responded in a meeting. And, and you're saying, God, what do you want to do in this person's life? What do you want to do in this person's life? And you feel under pressure to have the exact word to speak into every situation. But even before there was anything being spoken, the Holy Spirit was hovering. And I wonder sometimes if we wouldn't actually do people a favor by just letting the Holy Spirit hover (laughs) rather than trying to just find the word that's going to hit the situation. There's something about that presence of God. Doesn't matter how deep the need is in your heart, the Holy Spirit can hover. (laughs) It doesn't matter how great the darkness is, the Holy Spirit can hover. It doesn't matter how empty the emptiness is, the Holy Spirit can hover. And as he hovers, he's got this confidence that no matter how long it takes, there's going to come a moment when God will speak into that situation. And when he speaks into that situation, there's going to be transformation. But some of us want the word without the hovering. (laughs) Come on, God, what is it? What is it? What is it you want to say? And he might say, well, I don't want to say anything at the moment. But God, you must say something because I need to hear you. I know people who've got really off track in their journey because they've been so desperate to hear something, they've actually heard something that wasn't said. You know? It's just been triggered in their own imagination. I need to hear something. I think I'm hearing this. And sometimes, actually, you're not hearing anything because God's not actually saying anything. Now, that doesn't mean God's gone dead or God's gone deaf or, or anything. It just means 
that God's happy for the Holy Spirit to hover. Even if there are unplumbed depths, <laughs> even if there's darkness, even if there's emptiness, the Holy Spirit can hover. I still haven't really got my head around this because I, I still feel he ought to be obliged to do something, but he's happy to hover on the face of the deep. And his presence comes without that, that pressure. But there's something about the presence of the Holy Spirit that when he hovers, it gradually brings a great settling in your, your own spirit. Hmm? Talks in the Bible about deep calling unto deep. Hmm? The Holy Spirit is deep enough to understand any depth. Some of these people who, who, who purport to be very deep are incredibly shallow compared with the Holy Spirit, you know. You can't out-deep God. And he can just hover on that depth. Sometimes he'll hover on your depth until you suddenly realise it is incredibly superficial. You think your problems are endless and then you just realise, no, it's God who's endless. I found this, this hymn once. I was looking through a hymn book and sometimes they're quite inspiring. And there was this, this verse which goes, Oh God, thou bottomless abyss, who to perfection thou hast known. And I thought, wow, that is deep. <laughs> it's not just deep because it's obscure poetry. It's deep because God is deep. You can't out-fathom God. <laughs> And he's happy just to hover on the face of the deep. Doesn't faze him. Darkness doesn't faze him. Emptiness doesn't faze him. Just waits, just hovers on the face of the deep. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and when he comes, he's not trying to pressurize you. I know this can be very confusing, you know? You, you, want, you want God to push you in a certain direction. And yet, he doesn't pressurize. He doesn't pressurize. I remember a time when a lot of people in the church were, were desperate to be pressurized, you know. We'd gone through a time in the church where there was a lot of pressure coming from the platform. It was, it was good fun, you know. We were sort of trying to push the church forward, give it momentum, give it direction. And then we just sensed that God was saying, actually, not that. And, and sort of everyone was sort of feeling bereft of pressure. <laughs> they were sort of trying to say, where can I go to get pressurized? You know? <laughs> Who will push me? <laughs> Who will give me the kick that I need? And, and you think, Holy Spirit, give me a kick. And sometimes the Holy Spirit says, not, not kicking. <laughs> I'm just hovering. <laughs> and it can feel a little bit confusing. But you've got to let the Holy Spirit have his way. Whilst he's hovering on the deep, who knows what's going on in that depth? Who knows what's being lined up for that moment when, having hovered on that darkness, and God says, let there be light. How much preparatory work has the Holy Spirit done? 
How much transformation do you want? Do you want that transformation that when the word is spoken, the transformation is complete? Or do you want it to be a word here and a word there and, you know, then you're left pleading, Lord, it says in your book that your word doesn't return to you empty and yet this word doesn't seem to be producing in my life. Well, maybe the word's not producing because you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to hover (laughs) and do his preparatory work. When it's well prepared and the word is spoken, there is a response. That's just the way it works in God. Presence without pressure. Of course, God can do the earthquake. He can do the wind. He can do the fire. He can do all of this, can't he? I mean, you know, there's there's Elijah standing there. And there's this mighty earthquake and there's this incredible wind. The wind comes first and then the earthquake and then the fire. And and he's wrapping himself in his mantle. And it says God wasn't in the wind, even though he caused it. And God wasn't in the earthquake, even though he caused it. And God wasn't even in the fire, even though the wind and the fire are pictures of the Holy Spirit. And even though the Holy Spirit can break everything open, and then there's a still, small voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? And that's so annoying. Because when the small voice speaks, you expect it to say something Incredibly significant. Speak, Lord, in the stillness. Whilst I wait on thee, hush my heart to listen with expectancy. And there, after the earthquake, the wind and the fire, there's a still, small voice. And the voice says, What are you doing here, Elijah? God, you're not meant to ask questions. You're meant to come up with answers. Have you ever felt like saying that to God? But it was the question that changed his life. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he wasn't very original because he then says exactly what he'd said in the first place. You know? You know what he says. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Exactly the words that he'd said before. But there was a difference. This time he'd got a mantle wrapped round his head. Now I don't know if you ever tried this experiment. I did it in a meeting once. I won't do it tonight, but you know. Just imagine, there's this, this man who's angry. He's very angry. He comes before God and he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your orders, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then there's an earthquake and a wind and a fire. And that seems to match his mood, doesn't it? 
dramatic moves of God. And yet God was not in any of that. And then this little voice comes and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it says that by this time he'd wrapped his head in his mantle, taken off his coat and wrapped his head in it. And he says the same words. But I tell you, they don't sound the same. You can't come across with the same level of anger when your head's wrapped in a coat. I'm really tempted to try this, you know. Get someone up here with a real strong, angry voice and then wrap my coat around them as they say it again. And it would just not come out the same way, would it? But it's the way the Spirit of God works, isn't it? Not pressurizing. Just gently moving. Bringing realization into someone's heart and into someone's life. Turning Elijah around so that he can be recommissioned. Because the Holy Spirit then goes on and says to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And then this little bit. Do you know, sometimes you just realize God's got a sense of humor. The great I alone am left. And God says, yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Yeah, you alone are left. You and 7,000 others. It suddenly puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? But can you see, it's just a picture of how the Holy Spirit moves. (laughs) His presence comes without pressure. And yet, in his non-pressurizing way, he is totally and utterly able to bring transformation. And just that final thought. Perfection without parallel. Let's go to the book of Revelation. We've, we, we've started in Genesis. If we're really looking at the nature and role of the Holy Spirit, it's good to see the beginning and the end. <laughs> so, in Revelation chapter 4, it says this. This is John. After these things, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. 
And the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Talking about honoring God, the Holy Spirit. When it talks about one who's sitting on the throne, the one who sits on the throne is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, you don't have the Father sitting on the throne and the Son somewhere else and the Spirit somewhere else, even though it does then say that there are these lamps that are like the seven spirits of God. But this is an emanation from the throne. It's, the Holy Spirit is always wanting to go out. <laughs> And although you've got the one that's seated on the throne and you've got these seven lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. I used to struggle with this idea about, hold on a minute, seven spirits of God. But seven is the number of perfection. And we're talking about perfection without parallel. And here in Revelation, it's trying to give you a sense of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a little poetic phrase tucked away in Isaiah chapter 11, which I find really helpful when I'm looking at the perfection of the Spirit. Because if we're talking about the sevenfold Spirit of God, I need a little bit of help with that. I'm not someone who easily gets my arm, my um, mind around what it is, seven eyes and you know seven spirits. I, I, I do much better when I just think God is one. <laughs> And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the seven can actually get me confused until I realize that we're talking about the sevenfold Spirit of God. And there's something about the very nature of the Holy Spirit that is somehow best expressed through this concept of seven, which gives that picture of perfection. And in Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, just... Uh, speaking of the Spirit of God. Let me read from verse 1 of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is speaking of Jesus, of course. But then it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And I was so helped when someone said, Have you done any counting in that verse? I thought, hold on a minute, counting in that verse, surely that's just a poetic statement. It probably is, but look at it. The Holy Spirit is known first and foremost as the Spirit of the Lord. There is no division. When Jesus said, I will send my Spirit, he wasn't talking about anyone different from the Holy Spirit. There is this sense of God being one. And so the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is the Spirit of the Lord. And then it says, He's also the Spirit of wisdom. <laughs> now, isn't that great? He's the Spirit of wisdom, but He's also the Spirit of understanding. Do you know there's a difference between wisdom and understanding? <laughs> 
You need wisdom in order to get understanding. <laughs> the wisdom that comes from God, it talks about it, doesn't it? There is a wisdom that comes from above that is first pure and peaceable and it lists all these things in James. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit. There's a wisdom that comes from the world, but there's a wisdom that comes from above, and that's the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the personification of wisdom. When it talks about wisdom cries out on the corners, and it actually personifies wisdom in the feminine in Proverbs. She cries out. Well, don't get all worried about that. There is a sense in which God is not masculine in the way that we often think. He chooses to be known as he, but it doesn't mean to say that all femininity is now totally excluded. <laughs> so you can say that wisdom, she cries out, and you know that you're still talking about the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You can be given wisdom, but until the light really goes on, you don't get understanding. There's a lot of people that have received the spirit of wisdom and yet not have really grasped understanding. In fact, one of the things that's very interesting, when Paul prays for the Ephesian church, he prays that they might be given a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, why is that important? Well, it's a good example of how the prophetic and the apostolic go together, isn't it? Because the spirit of revelation or the spirit of unveiling gives us the same root as prophetic ministry, where you're, you're unveiling, you're uncovering. We need that. But if all you're doing is unveiling and uncovering and there's no wisdom there, it's not going to work. But similarly, if you're just given wisdom and there's no unveiling and uncovering, you're not going to get very far with your wisdom. It will remain locked up in a little box and never get unpacked. So praise God, we've got the Spirit of the Lord, who's also the Spirit of wisdom, who is also the Spirit of understanding. And then it says that he is the Spirit of counsel. Isn't it great that the one who comes to take residence in our lives is the wonderful counsellor. <laughs> There's something great about, just to turn back a few pages in Isaiah, when it says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, of chapter 9 this is, and the government unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counsellor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now I know it's wonderful, comma, counsellor, but there's something about acknowledging the unity that's there in God, that when Jesus comes, you see the wonderful counsellor. You see the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he comes as the spirit of counsel. He also comes as the spirit of might. Now, I'm so glad that that's not number one on the list, because for most of us, it would be number one on the list. I need the might of the Holy Spirit. And you can have the might of the Holy Spirit. But just remember, number one, Spirit of the Lord. Number two, what is it? Spirit of wisdom. Number three, Spirit of understanding. Number four, Spirit of counsel. Number five, Spirit of might. 
But then number six is the spirit of knowledge. We need the spirit of knowledge. That choice in the Garden of Eden wasn't simply a choice between life and knowledge. It was a choice between life and the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) There are two ways of getting knowledge. (laughs) You can either get it from God or you can get it just by living in the world and picking up things by experience. The kind of knowledge that we need is the knowledge that comes when you partake of the tree of life. There was a knowledge that was there in the tree of life that didn't have within it the taste of evil. And and wasn't the devil deceptive? He said, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Implying that God also knows good and evil. But you see, God doesn't know good and evil in the way that mankind has come to know good and evil. God doesn't know evil internally. He only observes it externally. Because in him, there is no impurity. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And isn't it wonderful to think that we can actually have knowledge without it being marred by having within it a knowledge of evil. It's just knowledge. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. Praise God that the spirit of knowledge in all of his perfection is wanting to be known in your life. And then it says the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Fear here is not sort of knees knocking in a way that would keep you out of the presence of God. It's the fear that enables you to come rightly into the presence of God. There is a fear that keeps you out. There is a fear that enables you to come in. (laughs) Because you can only come into the presence of God if you've got an appropriate sense of awe. See, when the spirit of the fear of the Lord is working in you, it actually transforms your relationship with the Father and with the Son. Because when you come into God's presence, you come in with a sense of absolute awe and respect and love that is transforming. Now, I know that there can be a great sense of intimacy that people like with God. You know? Some people just say, isn't it great we can call him Daddy? Hi, Daddy. How you doing, Daddy God? Hi, Daddy, 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 Daddy God. You know, well, that's, that's, that has its place. But there's also a sense when you come into the presence of God that you should come with something of that fear of the Lord. I am amazed that I can call you Abba Father. That is such an honour. I want to do it with reverence on my lips. (laughs) Not taking you for granted. Not suggesting that it was nothing to you that I should have been born again as your son. Because I know that getting born again as your son, Father, cost you everything. It cost you your son that I might become a son. So I call you Abba Father. And I do so with utter respect. I don't mind calling you Daddy God. 
but the spirit of the fear of the Lord is still upon me. I feel sometimes that we're in danger of having a superficial kind of intimacy. We, we could, you know, do worship songs where awe and intimacy go together. <laughs> but somehow we've lost the art. <laughs> we either do stuff that's incredibly intimate or it's so awesome that it's, it's remote. <laughs> but the spirit of the fear of the Lord can actually bring that together and make worship just absolutely amazing. I'm finding more and more, I don't know whether it's just as you get older this happens, you'll have to wait and see, won't you, some of you? But, <laughs> but I, I just get a greater sense of, of God's awe. And, and the more I'm in awe of him, the closer I feel to him. Now, I don't know how to describe that, because I wouldn't have really expected that at one point. But I can tell you, I'm finding it true. The more I'm in awe of him, the closer I feel to him. And I think that's got to do something with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. I'll be honest with you, you know, the Jews were very reluctant to pronounce the name of God. In fact, we don't actually know how the Tetragrammaton is pronounced. You know? Y-H-W-H, do you pronounce the Y's as J's or do you not? We don't know. There are no vowel markings. And yet today, do you know, I just wonder sometimes if it wouldn't be good for the spirit of the fear of the Lord just to touch us a little bit more to that point where we just hold the Lord's name with a sense of awe. I'll leave that one with you. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But I just know the more I'm in awe of him, the closer I get to him. But one little thing before we leave Hebrews 11. The spirit of the Lord, what does it say next? Shall rest upon him. Which brings me back to the point I was making that with the Holy Spirit you can have presence without pressure. Now I know that we need a flood tide of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Don't get me wrong, I know that. I know that we need the fire of the Lord to transform us. I know that too. But I also know this, that when the Spirit of God came upon the Lord Jesus, it was the dove coming upon the Lamb. The spirit of the Lord rested upon him. There was no sin to burn up. (laughs) There was nothing that needed to be cleansed. And the spirit of the Lord just rested upon him, as it says here in Hebrews 11. The spirit of God can do that. The spirit of God can do that. And as we're moving into this conference, I really want us to... Pray that over these few days people are going to come to know that 
character of the Spirit of God. And there in Hebrews 11, we've just got that little insight. The sevenfold Spirit of God. You don't have to look at the lamps that are there before the throne in Revelation 4. And they get mentioned again in Revelation 5. It talks about the seven eyes of the Spirit. But it's just giving us this sense of this perfection that's there in God. A perfection that when the Holy Spirit comes to touch our lives, he brings that perfection with him. Do you know, they had some debates some years back, and we will touch on this, where it was a big discussion. You know, is it possible to be baptized in the Holy Spirit without being made holy? And, and this was a serious discussion because there had been an emphasis going right back to sort of Wesleyan theology that when you got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was ordered in order to make you holy. And when the Pentecostal movement came along, that was still around. But then people started saying, no, no, no. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's in order to give you power. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You don't need to have a discussion, folks. If it's the Holy Spirit that comes to give you power, he's obviously going to bring his holiness with him. He doesn't leave it behind. You can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit without having something of his holiness. You're going to have his perfection because he is carrying that perfection when he comes to your life. It doesn't mean to say you're instantly perfect. (laughs) But it means that the spirit of perfection is touching your life. Not in a pressurizing way, but in this incredible way where God himself, working in perfect harmony, can actually do partnership in a way that isn't about seeking profile, but is just coming to serve. Now, I think we need to pray and say, Holy Spirit, we want you. I don't know whether I've inspired you with this. (laughs) I hope so. Because I got really inspired by this. I thought, do you know, this, this is the foundation for me. You know, whether we're looking at how you get born again, how you get baptized in the Spirit, how the Holy Spirit convicts in the world, how the Holy Spirit brings us together as a body, you know, how the fruit of the Spirit is produced in your life, it has to start with who the Holy Spirit is. And who the Holy Spirit is from eternity to eternity. Because when it says the one who was and is and is to come, it's not saying one member of the Trinity was and one member of the Trinity is and one member of the Trinity is to come. It's saying, no, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit was and is and is to come. In other words, it's a way of saying from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He may proceed from the Father, but there was never a time when the Spirit did not exist. (laughs) Proceeding from the Father just probably means a deriving of authority. But we need to know him. And everyone who comes to this conference needs to know him. (laughs) And they're not going to hear this message 
But I pray that whatever they hear as they come to this conference, it's going to give them an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I want us to pray. Let's stand on our feet. I don't mind how you're going to pray tonight. I don't mind whether you sort of disappear off into a corner and tear 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 off.